Merry Christmas, everybody. It's Christmas Eve. Can you believe it? It seemed to come up really quick this year. Um, we want to invite this morning, uh, invite our children to stay with us for the message, um, for our Christmas message. And uh, let me open us with a word of prayer. But before I do that, I wanted to read that last line of the special music that they sang for us this morning. Um, it just strikes me as, as a beautiful Christmas message. This flower whose fragrance tender with sweetness fills the air, dispels the glorious splendor of the darkness everywhere. True man, yet very God, from sin and death he saves us and lightens every load. This is what we remember at Christmas time. True God and very man saves us. Let's pray. Lord, we take this time of year to celebrate your birthday, to remember the greatest miracle that could ever be, the incarnation. Lord, your resurrection, while glorious and miraculous, others had risen from the dead. You had raised others at different times, but Lord, only you could become human. Only God the Son could take on humanity and become one of us. And so Christmas in, in that way is unique, it's special, and it's glorious. So, Lord, I pray that you'd be clear with us this season, that we would remember the incarnation, that we would celebrate the, the trappings that come with this uh, memorial of your birth, uh, the giving of gifts, singing of carols, having of food, and uh, watching Charlie Brown Christmas. But, Lord, that those things would not eclipse in our hearts and in our minds the true message of what you came to do. So, Lord, I pray that you'd be with us now as we look at your servant Micah and see what he has to tell us about your birth. And we pray these things in Christ's name, for his glory. Amen. So we're in the fourth Sunday of Advent, which happens to be Christmas Sunday at the same time. So you get a two for today. Um, we've been going through the minor prophets as we've been looking through uh, the Advent season and seeing what each one of the minor prophets is telling us about this coming Messiah. And um, I picked Micah to go last because I think Micah has got the strongest connection to Christmas. Uh, but... One of the things, if you've been reading through your Bible in a year, you've probably struggled when you get through some of the prophets. Some of them are great because you're familiar with New Testament interpretations of them. But when we get to the minor prophets, sometimes they just go right past us. Not sure how to connect with them, not sure what they mean. Micah is one of the ones that can be really difficult to figure out because the way Micah tells his story is he, he goes back and forth between this severe judgment on Israel for their idolatry and suddenly a message of mercy and grace and he's going to save his people and then he switches back to judgment. And, and so it can be kind of confusing as you're going through, what is he saying? Um, so what I want to do this morning is, is kind of take Micah as a whole, back up and look at his whole picture. And so we're going to start with the sin. What is the sin that Micah is addressing? What's he talking about? Then we're going to look at the threat. What is God threatening in response to this sin? But then in the end, end with God's mercy. What is God doing about this? How is he going to deal with this? So the sin that's happening in Israel. First of all, chapter 1, verse 1 introduces our prophet Micah, and it tells of the days in which he's prophesying and lists some kings. This is almost exactly what we heard last week. So this is the same time period as Isaiah and some of the other prophets prophesying to Israel before they go off into captivity, before they're taken away by Babylon. Uh, so that's the time period that we're looking at. But when we ask the question of Micah, all right, what's the sin that you're addressing? He tells us right up front, 
There's no, no mistake about this. He tells us right at the beginning in verse 5, all of this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? So right off the bat, he says, all of this is because of this thing. And he mentions the two capitals. Remember, the kingdom is divided at this point between the northern ten tribes and the southern two. Samaria is the capital of the northern ten tribes, and Jerusalem is the capital of the southern two. So is it a sin to have a capital city? He says, this is the problem. This is the sin is Samaria. Well, it's not a sin to have a capital city. So what does he mean? Well, he gives us a hint when he comes to Jerusalem and he says, and what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? That term high place is what will clue us into what's going on here. A high place, if you read through Kings and Chronicles, you'll hear often King so-and-so reigned in in, Jerusalem. Judah for so many years, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, except he didn't take down the high places. It just keeps coming up over and over and over again. What the high places were is the high places were high places. So go up on a a large mountain or a, a high hill, and they would go there, and there they would worship on these high places. So what's the beef about that? What's wrong with that? Well, this is an imported pagan practice. What you found at most of the high places was an Asherah pole. Asherah was a pagan goddess of fertility. And so they would go up and they would erect these poles up on these high places and they would go up there to worship Asherah to increase fertility. And by fertility, it wasn't just, can I have a baby, though that was part of it. It was also, can my flock have babies? Will my crops come in richly? That kind of stuff. So they would worship Asherah on these high places. And so when they mention the high places, it's not a good thing. But it's possible Notice it says the high place of Judah is Jerusalem. There's a temple in the middle of Jerusalem. How can this be a high place? Well, what happens is before Solomon built that temple, before it was ever constructed, in 2 Chronicles chapter 1, right at the beginning, it says that Solomon went up to the high place of Gibeon. And so what did Solomon expect to find at this high place of Gibeon? The tabernacle. So they took the tabernacle of the Lord and they put it in a high place, equating it with the worship of Asherah, treating it like it was the worship of Asherah. And what's even more complicated is he goes up there to worship at the, ta- at the tabernacle. Where's the Ark of the Covenant? David, his father, had brought the Ark down and put it in a tent in Jerusalem. So the worship is divided. So this is that picture of this high place. is this corrupted worship. And as a matter of fact, verse 7 in Micah, he goes on to explain what this means, that this is the high place and and what's wrong with Samaria. He says, all her carved images shall be beaten into pieces. All her wages will be burned with fire and her idols will lie waste. For from the fee of a prostitute, she gathered them. And for the fee of a prostitute, she shall return or they shall return. So here's the problem. Samaria was set up as the the capital of the northern kingdom. Samaria was never good. They always had problems. When when, um, Jeroboam set up the northern ten tribes, no, Rehoboam, I get those two, one of the Boam brothers (laughs) set up Samaria as an alternate. He took the ten tribes away. What he saw was that people were flocking to the south. Priests and, and people were going to the south to worship at the temple. 
And he said, this won't stand. We can't have people, this is, this is illegal migration. You can't go. We need you up here to make money for me. So he set up two golden calves. And he said, this is the gods. Worship, this is our god. Worship these. So from the institution of Samaria, they'd been worshiping false gods. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? This is what Micah is talking about. And so Micah says, her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. Carved images, what's one of the first commandments in the Ten Commandments? You shall make no image and worship it. This is specifically what they're doing. They have carved images and they worship them. It says that their wages will be burned with fire and their idols will lie waste. So they would erect idols. They would set up these false idols, these, these representations of a god and worship it. And then when it talks about the fee of a prostitute at the end, um, that could just be regular prostitution. But in this context, I think what they're talking about is temple prostitution. So to worship Asherah, to get Asherah to, to grant you fertility in your crops and in your flocks and in your personal life, they would hire a prostitute at the temple to get Asherah's attention because that's what she was the goddess of. So when it talks about the prostitutes here, it's probably talking about this corrupt and ugly worship. So this is the thing that Micah's talking about is idolatry. This is one of the reasons we have a hard time connecting with the, the prophets. How many of you have idols in your homes? I don't remember ever going to any one of your houses and seeing a shelf set up with a little golden box and some carved figure in it with candles around it, and you walk in and worship and pray to it. So we don't have idols, right? We don't have that problem. It, it feels so foreign and so distant. It's so far away. Idolatry, really? We're so, we're so much more sophisticated than that. But in the New Testament, you hear of Paul going to Athens. And as he walks through Athens, his spirit is provoked within him because the place is littered with idols. As a matter of fact, they've got a shrine to the God that they missed. In case we missed one, we built a shrine for him. And Paul says, no, I'm here to address you about this God that you don't know. But again, that's 2,000 years ago. We don't have idols today, do we? Well, if you go to certain Asian restaurants, you'll see a little Buddha there with, um, with often incense or candles, electric candles, and, and we saw one with fake fruit. I guess Buddha didn't notice that it was fake fruit. Um, but that's, that's still, that's another culture. That's not us, right? So this is, I think, one of the reasons that we can feel distant from Micah is because we don't share that problem. That's not a temptation for us. Or is it? In the New Testament, there are two places we are told flee from idolatry. 1 John 5.21 says, little children, keep yourself from idols. And in 1 Corinthians 10.14, Paul says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And, and in verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 10, he warns people that this is what Israel was doing, so don't you be idolaters. Well, again, that's in the context of the first century where there's idols everywhere. So they may have been tempted to do that. But then that means that those verses don't apply to us. And they do. God is speaking to us even through those verses. So then what idolatry do I face? I'm, I have never been tempted to bow down and worship a piece of wood or a piece of gold. Well, it turns out there's two places in the New Testament where they define idolatry for us. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. 
And in Ephesians 5, he says that same thing. He says, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. So our problem here then is not worshiping a, a carved figure of Artemis. Our problem is covetousness. And we're all susceptible to that. Even if you think you're not. How many people today would say, oh, yeah, man, I'm covetous. I, I covet quite a bit, man. It's what I do. One of the problems with covetousness is it's the most deceptive of all sins because you don't think you do it. Think of the Ten Commandments. If you go through the Ten Commandments, can you murder somebody by accident? No, that's called manslaughter. That's not called murder. You mur it's not like you murder somebody and go, oh, wow, I didn't think a knife in the heart would kill him. You can't commit adultery and say, I had no idea. Wait, that's not my wife. How did that happen? You know when you do those sins. When you tell a lie, you know that you have fabricated that. I have made that up. I am lying, and I know I'm lying. But covetousness, the problem is you don't know you're doing it. You don't realize what's going on. It's the, it's the sin in the Ten Commandments that's most internal. It comes from the heart. So how do you know if you're coveting? Well, first of all, the question is, what are you coveting? It could be anything. This is why it's so deceptive. We often think of money or possessions or something. My, my next door neighbor's RV is actually three foot longer than mine, and therefore I want theirs. Or my next door neighbor's makes, you know, a thousand more a year, and so I want their money or something. Those are the ones that are big and easy to see. The ones that are deceptive are things like power. This person has got more influence over somebody else. Or family, I, I really like the, the, the family next door is the one I want to be like. And you can begin to covet them. Or looks, that's dangerous in our culture, is am I good looking enough? The other person is better looking, I want to look like that person. Do you notice on cosmetic commercials, they always have beautiful people selling that stuff? They're telling you, if you put this stuff on your face, you will look like her. Isn't that great? Or you go to a, a gym, if you, if you buy this thing that will help you do sit-ups, you will look like this person who is ripped and has like one quarter of 1% body fat just by sitting up. They, they portray this to you and tell you, you can look like this. And what they're playing on is they're trying to stir up covetousness in you. I want what they have. I want to invest in what they invest in so that I can make money. So how do you know if you're coveting? Well, whatever it is that you're coveting, whatever that thing is that you're after, here's, here's a diagnostic. Look to somebody who has it and you don't. How do you respond to them? There's two ways. If you're coveting and you see somebody who has what you want and you don't have it, there's two ways that you might respond to it. The first is when they talk to you, you are flattered. I'm just so thrilled to be brought into this group because this person has that thing that I desire so much. And if I hang around with them, it will look like I have that thing. And so you just fawn over these people. It, this, this person is such a hero that they have that thing that you want. The other, op, the other option for that is, is diametrically opposed. You hate that person. I, of course I don't like them. Because you're insanely jealous of what they have and you don't. And so you, you despise them. And you despise them for no good reason. You can't put your finger on exactly what it is. Because what it is is that coveting that's in your heart. The other option is when you look at somebody who's got less of whatever that is that you, than you have, how do you respond to that person? 
You look down on them. You, you want to exclude them because it gives you a sense of, I have at least some portion of what I want, and you don't have it. And so this is what covetousness looks like. It's very deceptive. It's very hard to identify in your heart. You have to really be watching for it and praying for it. That's why Paul says, look, I, I, I obeyed the Ten Commandments, except for covetousness. I didn't know that it was wrong to covet until I read in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covenant. And then I started coveting. <laughs> I couldn't help it. So he thought he had done this, but he recognized even that one got by him. That was, that was sneaky. So this is what idolatry is for us. Now let's take that back to Micah and see if Micah doesn't connect with us this morning, if he doesn't have something to say to us after all. So Micah's complaint against Israel is, you are idolaters. And for us, the complaint might be, you are coveting. Look at where this leads. So covetousness, or idolatry or covetousness is what starts out. And then in, in uh, chapter 2, verse 2, Micah says, this is another accusation against Israel, they covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. So right there, notice covetousness snuck in. I'm not importing this from the New Testament and artificially putting it in. It's right there. These idolaters now covet a man's house, a man's fields. They look at what that person has. They don't have it, and they want it. And so how do they respond? They oppress them. If they have the power, if you have the power to get that thing you want, you see somebody else with it, you will begin to oppress them in order to get from them what you want. That's why one of the responses, if they have something you don't, is you might hate them. This is your way internally of oppressing. So covetous, idolatry and covetousness leads to oppression. The next thing that happens, verses, uh, chapter 3, verse 9. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. You who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight. The rulers in the house of Jacob and in the house of Israel detest justice. They make crooked what is straight. Once you have the power, once you're in a position to have that thing, you will do anything to hang on to it. You'll oppress by perverting justice because you want that thing. You've got to have that thing. And so you will pervert justice and you'll turn away to a crooked way in order to hang on to it. This is the deceitfulness of riches. This is the deceitfulness of, of beauty that's promised to you as, as you begin to turn towards crooked ways unknowingly. And by the way, they'll do it through economic methods too. Flip over to chapter 6, verses 10 and 11. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? What he's saying here is, here's a person who is in the business and trading. I'm going to buy and sell wheat, for example. But I have a scant measure. There is something wrong with my measuring cup. It says one cup, but it's actually slightly less. I have scales that don't actually tip to the center when they're weighed. I'm, I'm using a bag of weights that have some cheaters in it. 
so that I can rip people off. As I weigh out the, the goods that I'm going to buy from them, I'll give them less than what they're worth. And I'll make more money that way because then I'll turn around and sell them for what they're worth. So this is something that God has repeatedly said he hates is dishonest weights, dishonest scales. Once you've got the covetousness and you've got the power to hold it, now you'll do whatever it takes to hang on to it and to actually increase it. And the picture here is through economic means, cheating other people, ripping them off, doing dishonest things to hang on to them. And here's, here's where the econo economic part kind of, you'll see this play in now. Chapter 7, verse 3. These are, their hands are on what is evil to do, uh, to do it well. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. They're focusing on doing evil, and I want to do it in an exceedingly good fashion. I want to make, I want to make my best effort at doing evil. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe. The great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The princes, once you've gotten this, this taste of what it is that you want and you've cheated to improve it, now you'll take a bribe. This is God's complaint against Israel is your princes and your judges will accept bribes. They ask for them. So what do you want? How, how much justice do you want? How much can you afford? It, it's a deceitful thing that they do. And then finally, back to chapter 6, verse 12. Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Your rich men are full of violence. Why would a rich man need to be full of violence? He's got everything, right? I will fiercely protect what I now worship. My idol has, has been secured, and so now I will practice violence to hang on to it. Don't ever threaten me. Don't ever get close to trying to take my idol away from me. So this is the message that, that Micah has for Israel. And I think it's a pertinent message because it's a warning of what can happen in us if we don't address covetousness. And here's the scary part, this last one, this last point in, in the, the sins that he's dealing with. They hire teachers and prophets to justify it. In Micah 3.11, it says, its heads give judgment for a bribe, its priests teach for a price, its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is it not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster will come upon us. When it says that the priests teach for a price and prophets divine for money, what they're saying is, you need justification for what you're doing? Is it warm? Is it? Because when I start feeling comfortable, I usually get really cold when I'm preaching. So if it gets comfortable for me, I'm worried that y'all are falling asleep. Okay, cool. Because um, I'm comfortable. I don't know about y'all. Um, what he's saying is the priests will, will teach for a price. What do you want to hear? Let me slide some money your way. Tell me what it is that I'm doing that's okay. Find a loophole in the scripture to say what I'm doing is okay. And the prophets, come and prophesy to me and tell me that, it's, that what I'm doing is good. If you have enough cash, you can get your, your favorite teacher, your favorite prophet to come and tell you the right thing. 
You think that stuck in the Old Testament? You think that was only a problem for Israel? 2 Timothy 4, 3 says, for the time is coming. So Paul is, is saying, he's looking forward to like our time. He's looking forward and he says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. This is not a problem that's stuck in the Old Testament that we're delivered from. This is a chronic threat to us, is we might accumulate for us teachers who say things we like to hear. They tell us we're just dandy. Everything's just ducky. So this is a dangerous path. This is, it starts with idolatry, and it heads down this very dangerous path. It, it's not okay to toy with a little bit of covetousness. I'll just turn on the TV and watch that one channel that's got that thing that I want really bad, only a little. I'll just pay attention to every other car commercial for that car that I desire. You can't toy with these things. The road that they take you down leads to a very desperate place. And God's response to that then, his threat to that, is pretty terrifying. All the way through Micah, there's this constant back and forth. Here's the sin. Here's what I'm going to do about it and the promise. If I want to grab one verse, one section to kind of sum up his, God's threat about what he's going to do about this idolatry, it would be Micah 6, 13 through 15. I think this is where he hits the, the nail on the head. And so this is what he says, Therefore, I will strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat and not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away but not preserve, and what you preserve I will, uh, I will give to the sword. You shall sow but not reap. You shall tread olives but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes and not drink wine. Here's the threat. If we go for some mad-made thing that we're coveting, some creation, and we want that to take our place, we want that to satisfy us, what God is saying is no matter how much of it you get, it will not satisfy. It can't. He's not saying you'll never eat. He's saying, look, you're going to eat, and you're still going to be hungry. You're going you're to tread grapes, and not a drop of oil is going to come out because you're looking to a created thing to fill you up to make you satisfied. And what God's telling Israel is they can't satisfy. Later in the prophet Jeremiah, he's going to, tell, he's going to say this. He's in Jeremiah 2, starting in verse 11, he says, Has a nation changed its gods even though they were no gods? Look at the pagans around you. Have you ever seen a nation change their gods? Look what you're doing, Jerusalem. Look what you're doing, Israel. You're changing your gods. But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate because the Lord, or declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So this is, this is Israel turning and looking to be satisfied with something created. God says, you have forsaken me, I am the fountain of living waters. Living means moving, active, bubbling, flowing. God is saying to Israel, look, I am this continual flowing fountain that will never run dry. You will never fail to be satisfied. It will never come about where I won't be enough for you. It's a fountain of living waters. That's evil that you turn from that. But what else is evil? The second evil they did 
was they went over to a hole in the ground and they poured water into it and it leaked out and they sat down and they tried to lap up the mud and said, the mud will satisfy me. There's a fountain flowing with water next to them and they're chewing on mud, a cistern that can't hold water. This is evil. And the problem here is that a, no created thing can bear the weight of our worship. It can't bear the weight of our worship. Why? Because it'll eventually come back and consume you. If, if your thing that you're coveting is good looks, and you spend all your money on all the cosmetics and get the right hairstyle and the right clothes, what happens when, and I got news for y'all, you get old, it happens. What happens when you age and that beauty begins to fade? Will it find some way to satisfy you in a different way? The toll is terrible at this point. You, haven't, you have banked everything you've had on your good looks, and your good looks fade. And now what? It consumes you. You start spending money on plastic surgery so your face doesn't move. You want to preserve it in time. i got to keep that good looks. And have you seen people who talk and their lips don't move? Or, or who have a perpetual state of surprise look on their face because they got their, their skin stretched? This is the terrible toll that the, their good looks is demanding from them because it won't be satisfied. It won't fill you up. What about money? You put everything you've got into earning as much money as possible, and you bank it, and you bank it, and you bank it. Now I've got everything. I've got enough money. When that money runs out, when the stock market crashes, when your home value drops from $1.5 to $320,000, then what? There is nothing left to do for you. It is not going to continue to satisfy. It's going to consume you. Now you're going to chase after whatever you can to, hide it, to hang on to those things that you have. If your idol is your family, I got news for you. Kids grow up. They, they move away. And sometimes they do really well, and sometimes they don't. If you've knitted everything you are, all of your identity, into what my family looks like, when your family leaves you, when they move off and be on their own, and by the way, that's biblical, for a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife, then what do you have left? A house full of pictures hanging on to something that happened a long time ago. It becomes so much, you might not be able to enjoy your children as they are now. We could keep going, item after item after item. What is it that is your idol? What is it that is your, your promise? It can't bear the weight of your worship. It can't. Your intellect. I am so smart. People are just so amazed at how smart I am. One of the other things that fades when you get older, the old memory is not quite as good. You start stumbling for words. Again, it can't bear, even your intellect, which is a gift from God, can't bear the weight of worship. It can't. You're going to be unsatisfied. That's what God pronounces. This is the judgment. I'm going to give you what you want. And I'm going to give it to you in spades. And then it's going to desert you. It's going to eat you alive. It's going to turn you into a bitter, lost, ugly person because you become like what you worship. So what he's saying is there's a stream of living waters. And isn't that what Jesus told the woman at the well? He promised her, he said, give me something to drink. And she said, well, you know, or, you know, he offers her something to drink. And she says, well, you can't pull water out of this well. He goes, if you knew who you were talking to, 
I can offer you streams of living water. It's something that you will never thirst again. Only God can bear the weight of our worship. Only God can carry us through that. Only God will not desert us when we run out. He'll come and he'll provide for us. So that leads us to the last point. What is God's mercy in all of these pronouncements? It, it comes in a couple of places. The, there's a, a section, chapters 4 and 5, talks about God's mercy. And then the very end of the book, chapter 7. So let's start at the end and work backwards. The end of the book reads, Who is a God like you? pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the, remnant, for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have shown to our fathers from the days of old. Micah is not pronouncing doom and gloom. He is offering them hope, but he's not offering them hope in their idols. They can't bear it, but God is the one who can bypass that. He can overlook their sin. He can tread down their trespasses. He can throw their sin into the sea. And so he's calling them to return to this God. This is the, the, this, the fountain of living water that will never run dry. And so after he announces doom and gloom, desolation, I'm going to wipe out the cities. They, you people are going to go into exile. It's going to be empty here. In the midst of that, he says, but God is a God who can forgive. So how is God going to accomplish that? What's he going to do? That's what we had Aaron read this morning. Chapter 5. Um, chapter 5 is one of those places where the Hebrew breaks it in a different place. So chapter 5, verse 1 in Hebrew is different than chapter 5, verse 1 in English. Uh, so I'm going to start at the Hebrew one. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler over Israel, whose coming forth is from days of old, from ancient days. This is the problem, or this is the promise, rather. And this is where it ties us back into Christmas. Doesn't that sound familiar? This is Bethlehem. What, what Micah is telling people is he says, look, you are chasing idols. You are chasing things that can't satisfy, but one is going to come who's going to lead, who's going to rule my people and rule them well. And he's going to come not from Samaria, the capital city with all its grandeur littered with idols, not from Jerusalem that is this high place to Judah. He's not going to come from these great and these magnificent things. He's going to come from Bethlehem. Too little, among the clans, uh, too little to be among the clans of Judah. In other words, Bethlehem, this little tiny town that was off a major road, that wasn't even a clan. That was just a city. And who came from Bethlehem? David did. David, this is the king after God's own heart. This is the one who was promised. He came from tiny little Bethlehem. And not only did he come from tiny little Bethlehem, remember Samuel went to find him? And he goes to Jesse, he says, hey, trot out the boys. Let's take a look. One of these is the king. And so Jesse's bringing, hey, here's a big strap and one. This must be it. Nope, not him. And they get through all of them. And, and he says, well, aren't there any more? <laughs> you know, God didn't say anything. Well, there's, there's David, but, you know, he's out in the field and, you know, he's David. Go get him. And God says, this is the one. 
So not only was he from the smallest of cities, he's from a small tribe, he, or a small clan, he's the smallest in that family. This is how God is going to bring about this change. He is not going to compete with those idols. He's not. He's not going to try to outshine Samaria. He's not going to try to outglamour fallen Jerusalem. Instead, he's going to come in a way that's small. And he's going to subvert the whole system from inside by starting in a small place. So that's what Micah's audience would hear. They would hear this promise of David. And that's why right after this is, for you, for, um, from you shall come forth for me. One is to be ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from old. It would hearken them back to David. And so that's probably what these folks are thinking. This is why when you get to the New Testament, often you'll hear people yell at Jesus, son of David, have mercy. They were really eagerly anticipating this son of David to show up. But there's something that God says right in the middle that if you don't pause for a second, it's, it gets past you. From you shall come forth for me, one who will be a ruler. He doesn't say, I will send one to you to be your ruler. He says, he's going to be a ruler for me. And his grace, his mercy is, he says, from you, I'm going to draw this ruler who will be for me. So when you look back and you say, hey, this is from old. This is from like the, David, the Davidic covenant. This is when David was first called. Yes, that's there. But there's also another phrase that takes a little further back. He says, whose coming forth is from days of old, or from, uh, from old, from ancient days. David's not far enough back, you guys. You haven't traveled far enough back. If you're stuck at Bethlehem, there's someone who comes from even further back. His, his coming forth is from old. He's, he's the promised Davidic covenant fulfillment. But he comes from even further back, from day, ancient days, from long, long ago. And so who is this? Well, from Matthew 2, we know this is Jesus. Because when the Magi show up and they say, hey, we're looking to worship this new king, his stars in the east, Herod says, where is he going to be born? And they quote Micah, they quote from Bethlehem. Okay, that's where we need to look. So they knew this was a, a, a prophecy that would be fulfilled. And so they're looking for this Davidic king, but they're just not going back far enough. John chapter one. John is often accused of not having a nativity. Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about, Mark doesn't, but Matthew and Luke talk about Jesus' birth. And so they say, well, John doesn't have a nativity. John has got the most glorious, the, the, the largest, the most rich nativity that could possibly be. Let me just pick a couple of spots through John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of men, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. His coming 
is from of ancient times, from before the foundation of the world, this is the Davidic king who would come. So they weren't looking at big enough picture. They weren't looking for the right thing. And Jesus coming actually fits in with this idea of Bethlehem being this small, insignificant place. Because in Philippians 2, Paul is talking about Jesus coming. He says, Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus Christ, who was in the form of God, who was the very person of God, came in Bethlehem to take on human form. And he didn't just beam in at some point. He came in human form from the very beginning of what it means to be a human being. He was born in a, in a human form. He, he took on humanity. So what does that mean? This is one of those, those theological questions that can kind of some, sometimes stymie us. What does it mean he emptied himself? He was the eternally begotten son of God. There was never a time when the son wasn't. So when it says he emptied himself, does that mean he gave up his divine um, attributes? He emptied himself of divine attributes? That can't be. Because Colossians 1 says, for in him the fullness was pleased to dwell. In him, in this born Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That's why I wanted to read from uh, the, the song that we sang this morning. Very God and truly man, united in one person. His coming forth was from old. So this, this Jesus takes on the form of a servant, born in an insignificant town, laid in a food trough because there was no place for him. And he came in order to subvert the idolatry of Israel. He came to subvert our idolatry because only he could bear the weight of our worship. So this little tiny infant, this baby that we celebrate every year at this time of year, is the only thing that can take our worship. He will not consume us. When we, when we get tired, when we're, when we're running out, he won't come and consume us. He came to die for us. He's the only thing that will do that. There is nothing in, in all of creation that you can worship that will die for you. Only the baby in the manger will die to satisfy you eternally, perpetually, without end. So that section that we read this morning, towards the end it says, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. So what do you do with the covetousness when it rises up? What do you do when you find yourself disliking somebody because they have something you, have, you want? They're better at something than you, than you are. Gosh, I do that. I hate that. Get really intolerant of somebody because they're good at something you wish you were good at. It's like, oh my gosh, please set me free. Jesus will be your peace. Jesus will be your peace. He will set you free from that covetousness. He's the only one that will be able to delight you now and through eternity. That's why he promised the woman at the well, I will give you living streams of living water that will pour forth in your heart. You will never thirst again. You can drink from me. You can keep swallowing and keep swallowing and keep swallowing, and I will never be exhausted. I will always be sufficient for you. I will always be enough for you. This is the promise of Christmas. This is what God is promising by saying, 
Bethlehem, you're tiny, but I'm going to do something great. And so this, this Christmas, as we celebrate and we take the moment to pause and consider the baby in the manger, don't forget Micah. Invite him into your Christmas celebration. To scare you, because that covetousness might be there. It might be under the Christmas tree wrapped in a box as well. To scare you because it's going to fail me someday. The batteries are going to run out. My face is going to sag. The cash is going to dis- disappear. It can't satisfy. And then the promise that he offers. Bethlehem, from you will come a ruler. He will be the peace. And that's the promise of our Christmas. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for bearing the weight of our desires. Lord, thank you for bearing the weight of our worship, for delighting to do that, for becoming one of us. And yet in you, the fullness dwells. Lord, I pray that in Christmas, especially at Christmas, because we get so distracted by the commercials and the the presents under the tree and the food and all of those things, um, Lord, help us to not be distracted. In the midst of this, would you remind us that those things are good and fun and, and enjoyable, but they are not ultimate. Lord, would you help us to remember that only you are ultimate and that in 10,000 100,000 years, all of those things will be dust, but you will be on your throne and we will be worshiping. Lord Jesus, thank you for this wonderful Christmas present. In your name we pray, amen.